Welcome to episode 10 of the WASB Connection Podcast. The goal of today's episode is to help you start or continue a conversation about educational equity that helps your district students reach their potential. We'll start by talking to a pair of WASB consultants, both former superintendents, about why we're talking about this issue and how it's relevant for every district. Then we'll hear about what equity looks like in one of those districts during a conversation with Polly Mua of Appleton. First, let's start out with that higher level overview from Dan and Luis. talking to Dan Nirad and Luis Blankenheim, two WASB consultants, and I'm hoping that we can start by talking a little bit about your backgrounds in education. Well, thank you, Dan. My name is Louise Blankenheim. As Dan said, I'm one of the WASB consultants. I've been in education over 35 years. I'm a retired superintendent from Keele, and prior to that, I was with Green Bay Public Schools working in curriculum and instruction. And I'm happy to be here. As am I. And my name is Dan Nirad, and I, too, serve as a WSB consultant. I've spent 45 years in public education, serving in three school districts. spent most of my career in Green Bay, my last seven years there as superintendent. And then from there, I was a superintendent in Madison for four years, and I completed my superintendent work in Birmingham, Michigan, where I spent six years. And not unlike Louise, I'm happy to be a part of what WSB is doing to provide information and have dialogue regarding these important equity-related issues. Equity has been a discussion in education for a long time. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about why we're refocusing on it now. You know, I think it's critically important to recognize that equity issues have been present with us literally forever. And I think, you know, that that needs to be recognized. And perhaps part of the reason why this issue is becoming more crystallized is the outcomes of our lack of addressing equity can have profound effects not only on individual kids, but I would argue also has profound effects on on economic and workforce development. You know, the way I'll frame that issue is with a declining birth rate, we have an obligation to ensure that much more. We've always had this obligation, but that much more to ensure that every kid is successful and that we can't have kids that aren't having their needs met in schools and aren't successful with schooling because we won't be able to meet the needs of community unless every one of our kids is that much more successful today. In addition, you know, there's growing intolerance around the fact that, you know, some kids are successful in school, or I should say many kids are successful in school, and some kids aren't successful in school. This has to be a social phenomenon. It has to be what happens with some kids in their experiences in school and our experiences with them in school. And in addition, we know that, you know, some kids are very deeply affected by trauma-related issues in their lives. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, that is something that we have an obligation to address from a, a very simple definition around equity. It's our obligation to remove barriers for kids in their learning and to provide them what they need. And some kids need different than, and some kids need more than. And equity causes us to focus on the different than and the more than. Dan, I really appreciate you saying that. And I think that over the years now with this focus so much on data and assessment, we have solid background data that tells us that we need to step up our game for all of our students because we hear so much about the achievement gap. And as Dan said, it's not for a lack of being able to learn. There are some barriers. Earlier this summer, the WSB Board of Directors released an equity statement, and they included a list of 15 questions that you can use as jumping off points if you're not sure kind of where to start your discussion as a district. Could you talk a little bit about these questions, maybe give us a few examples of what this conversation might look like? The way we have been kind of framing this set of questions is around there are many on-ramps that school districts can use to have conversations and to take actions to focus on equity. There's no one thing that every district should be doing. And I think that these questions allow all districts to evaluate and reflect on where they are at. If you look at some of the rural districts that are primarily white middle class, they may not have a focus on that. But we're not just talking about race here. We are talking about equity for all learners and the mental health of students. Are we dealing with the mental health issues of our students? One of the questions that we have for school boards is, how are we ensuring that we assess every decision with an eye toward its impact on all students? Look at your special ed population. Look at your English learner population, your poverty level. I'll include a list of those 15 questions in the show notes, and they tackle things like advanced coursework, early learning, culturally relevant curriculum. What's a sample question that you think might be helpful? I'm just going to start out with a personal situation. When I was superintendent, I noticed we did not have very many AP courses for our students. And I knew that that was something that definitely had to be embedded. So I wanted to start out with talking with the science department because I felt it was very important that we had AP biology. They had an advanced biology, but why weren't we providing an access to college credits for our students? The belief of the department was that our students would not be successful in that program. And right there, to me, was an area that I needed to work diligently on the belief system of our educators. A belief system needs to be part of the culture that we develop for our students, that they all have the potential to be successful and have high achievement. Stay with that example just for a a little bit longer. What does that conversation look like at a school district level that is an equity issue around uh, not all kids being able to access our most advanced courses is not just a high school issue. Unless we address that issue at elementary and at middle school and provide access to more enriched learning and the kind of supports that will allow kids to be successful, 
you know, it's tempting just to place kids in more rigorous coursework. And yes, I believe that's what should be ultimately done. But unless you provide the right kind of supports and you provide them early at elementary and at middle school, a child's ability to access those courses becomes much more complicated if you start that conversation at the high school level. These are examples of conversations that fit every district across the state, especially if, if the district has done disaggregation of their data and have clear and convincing evidence that not all kids are able to access those courses. They represent key gateway opportunities for kids beyond our K-12 education and to allow kids to be that much more successful with post-secondary learning. I think that the curriculum is extremely important there as well, that each student can see themselves in the curriculum. They can relate to the learning and apply that to their daily life. So one way to practically address that is, has there been an audit of the instructional materials in the district through the lens of equity and through the end of cultural differences. Louise is very right. When kids find their place with us, they see themselves within our curriculum. They see a connection to their learning with who they are as a person. They can go so much further. And so one way to look at that issue around that question about culturally relevant learning experience, you know, through our curriculum work is to audit, do an audit of our materials to take a look at, in fact, are they culturally relevant? And there are, there are really good resources out there to help with that type of audit today. As I listened to the July 30th equity webinar, and you can find that on our website, and I'll put a link to the show notes. I thought it was interesting the way that Brad Saron, the superintendent of Sun Prairie, talked about discipline, and he resisted seeing it through that frame. Could you tell me a little bit about what role discipline has to play in this discussion and what you think about the way that Mr. Saron discussed it? Well, I think kind of implicit in his comments is a view that uh, again, I'm not trying to speak for him, but he spoke very eloquently around about this issue, is inappropriate behavior is a symptom of something else. And the whole idea of what he emphasized is creating the right kind of culture in our schools that kids have their place. And as a result of that, there is a diminishment of inappropriate behavior. And so rather than look at this solely around discipline, policies and rules, let's look at this around healthy school cultures is what I believe he was asserting. And I, I, I very much agree with what he's trying to accomplish in his district. And along with that, I feel as educators, we do have a responsibility to have teachable moments. Students are going to make mistakes. We have to be cognizant of the environments surrounding each of our students. And there are reasons why behavior is a problem in some students. And I think it's our obligation to go to the root of that problem and try to make some changes or some interventions and assist families who may have some challenges in that area, but also not to take away consequences. I think it's really imperative that we do have consequences for inappropriate behavior. However, I think that we do also have an obligation to find out the root of that problem and to try to intervene in that way. 
I very much agree with that. And I think we can be both about helping kids learn and using situations as a teachable moment and you know, not abandoning what I'll call appropriate consequences. The value around looking at those root causes is we are a learning organization, you know, by the nature of what we do. And so we also have an obligation to help kids learn from their behavior, not just through, mm-hmm. you know, through their learning. And so, yeah, I know there are multiple perspectives around this work in restorative justice, but I believe those practices have a sound basis to them to help confront the problem when it occurs, to teach and learn around it, and to restore victims that have been offended when and if they're ready to be involved in restoration. So we use that word discipline like a verb, right? We discipline a student or a child, but really discipline is about cultivating self-control and healthy behavior. And what we call SEL or social-emotional learning can help. Could you talk a little bit about the role of SEL? There is a lot of talk now on that social-emotional learning, and years ago we'd think that type of learning comes from the families. We're finding now that some students need an extra boost in those areas of character development, decision-making, behavior, dealing with emotions, all those types of things I think that are now becoming very important part of our education or part of our responsibility as we educate our children. What role might social emotional learning play with equity in particular? From my perspective, it clearly does because number one, kids are social beings and school is a social place. To ignore that in terms of how kids are developing socially, how they regulate their emotions, uh, as one example, is to ignore the fact that we have human beings in front of us. My advocacy has been around addressing social emotional learning with a set of standards no different than we have with math, but embedding the work within the curriculum. I've seen educators beautifully address social-emotional learning as they're teaching social studies, as they're teaching math. It's part of the classroom climate that each teacher develops and a part of the culture in the school that we're going to be respectful of one another. You know, we're going to accept our differences. Switching gears, we've heard that one potential challenge to this work can be the perception of families and parents that This is a zero-sum game, that resources devoted to some students mean that their students will be harmed. Can you talk a little bit about that mindset and ways that you recommend meeting that challenge? A couple things that come to mind around that. Number one, I think as adults and as educational leaders and as policymakers, we do have an obligation to continue to have conversations about the funding of public education. And I say that because understanding the work that we do is a resource-driven proposition. And part of the zero sum can become created around scarcity of resources. So, you you know, you, you don't have adequate funding 
to do things. And as a result, very difficult decisions are made to be able to support certain programs at the perceived and sometimes at the actual impact of other programs. That zero-sum conversation of you're helping one group of kids but you're not helping another group of kids can, in fact, turn into a very real thing. And I believe there are opportunities to frame this in a way that can mitigate that from happening. I believe it is possible to address excellence and equity at the same time. We have to recognize that some kids need some additional things or different things and need supports and interventions and additional learning opportunities. That's the focus on equity. And so my encouragement for districts have been to be about both and to frame around both and to be transparent around the difficult decisions that may at times have to have to be made. But the reason why I feel hopeful around that framing is that while kids who aren't meeting standards, for example, may need interventions and support systems and tutoring or trauma-informed care, whatever it might be, all kids need best practice from us. And so our kids that are not meeting standards will benefit just like our kids who are meeting standards if every one of our classrooms is focused on the highest quality instruction and the supports that they need. So there are a lot of challenges to this work, obviously. If it was easy, it would have been done already. And we talked about the zero-sum mindset. What are some of the other challenges that you see getting in the way and what are some potential solutions? I think that one of the problems is that people just don't address it because they don't feel that it's important within their district or they ignore it. And I don't say that that it's intentional. I think that sometimes boards and school districts work hard in so many different areas and it may be something that is just um, not a focus. So, I mean, just looking at these questions and asking yourselves as a board or, or a leadership team, where are we lacking? And I think the first step is just really an awareness and starting a discussion about it. Well, thanks for your time this morning. I appreciate it. You're welcome. You're very welcome. Uh, I think I appreciate the fact that we have this opportunity to have this conversation about meeting the needs of all kids. So we're talking with Holly Moa, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer at the Appleton Area School District. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, Dan. How are you? I'm great. I'm good, too. So... I wanted to start by talking a little bit about how you got to where you are today. And I read that your family emigrated to the United States in the 80s. Is that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me a little bit about what that was like for you? Sure. So just a little bit background information on me. I was actually born in a refugee camp in Thailand. And then my family was fortunate enough to be able to come to the United States because of the Refugee Act that was passed in 1980. And so we arrived in Fresno, California first in 1984. I was five years old. And so being born and raised in a refugee camp where, you know, home was, you know, the only place that I knew, but home was very much restricted. So around the refugee camp, there were barbed wires, there were Thai soldiers. And so we were very limited in terms of what we were able to do, as well as going in and out of the camp. 
and I actually just finished my dissertation, and I talked a lot about my personal life, my lived experiences, and I shared that I think being born in a refugee camp and having that kind of childhood really leverage my passion as well as my drive to continue to do the work that I do today. And so coming to the United States as a uh, child refugee because of the secret war, many Hmong families were able to move to the United States as a result of the secret war that happened in the 1970s. We arrived in Fresno, California, and then because my father had immediate family members in Wisconsin, um, then we moved to Wisconsin in the early 1990s. And so um, I think a lot of people kind of ask, like, well, you were in California, the nice sunny state. How did you end up in Wisconsin? And so primarily um, family is really central. It's the heart and the hub of Hmong people, particularly Hmong communities. That's how we got here and then how I stayed and how I transitioned to Appleton, Wisconsin, was I, I'm now married. I got married when I was 16 years old, and my husband and I live in Appleton. And we've been here for over 20 years, and we raise our children here. And again, it's coming full circle as a product of the Appleton Area School District. I did go to school. I did graduate from Appleton North, and now, you know, in 2018, I'm coming back as an administrator. And so I've been very fortunate and blessed to have worked in the education field for over 20 years, particularly my background is in higher education. Like many areas in Wisconsin, Appleton has become more diverse in the last few decades. Could you tell me a little bit about how Appleton is changing and how the schools are changing? Yes, definitely. According to our ethnicity breakdown for 2019 and 20, students of color make up 32% of the total population. And Appleton School District is about 16,000 students. As a student, I did see some aspects of who I was in terms of representation at the student level, but I did not see a representation of who I am at the administration level or as an educator. And so growing up in a field where you are continuing to be educated and impacted by people that look like you, that was something that was always missing for me, you know, that aspect of role models, that aspect of mentors, you know, I really never saw myself leading, you know, I really never saw myself in opportunities that would help empower me to lead or, you know, empower me to be able to grow and want more. And I think representation really is key. And that's one thing we continue to work on within our district. Honest and straightforward, as I interviewed for the position, that's the one key thing that I indicated that, you know, as a student 20 years ago, you know, I felt like I was coming back to almost the same district with the exception of the student demographic population growing. So therefore, we really need to be more focused and intentional about growing our educators and our administrators to be able to really reflect that representation so that our underrepresented populations, particularly our students of color, also see themselves in leadership opportunities. How have you seen that affect among boys and girls in Appleton today? 
the generation has changed. The focus of the students' wants and desires have shifted and changed a little bit more so. The Hmong community itself has also changed. We have continued to grow and adjust and adapt in many ways. Even today, you know, you have Hmong women taking a different role, working outside of the household, pursuing their career and education. I think as a Hmong woman, I have definitely learned to navigate uh, cultural barriers, to be able to always be mindful of my identity as a Hmong woman, but also be able to, in many ways, challenge the gender norms and the gender stereotypes within the culture, but do it in a way that is respectful. So when I go out and engage in the community, particularly with Hmong elders, I'm very mindful of my interaction, my approach, my language. But I think that the Hmong students today really want to see, you know, a leader that really embodies every aspect of who they are, their identity, their culture. I think that's really powerful, again, for them to be able to connect, see, hear, and just have conversations with someone that looks like them, that has a similar background. So it sounds like you're asked to navigate shifting cultural worlds a lot. I'm wondering, is that difficult for you sometimes? Yes, definitely. It's hard because you are code switching, your role switching all the time. And I think for me, it's almost become, it's almost normalized because I've had to do it my entire life. It's almost natural to me. It's not negative. You know, I'm very mindful of how I show up in a space. That's interesting. You know, we all show different parts of ourselves in different settings, but For those of us who don't have that cultural switching experience that that you have, could you give me an example of what that's like? Maybe how you talk or behave differently, maybe talking to me versus perhaps talking to a long elder. So I'll give you a perfect example. As a professional in the administrative role that I'm in, I have to be very outspoken. I have to be, in essence, lead conversations most of the time and also be able to provide resource and support for other people, whether that may be educators, administrators, or students. And then in my traditional role as a Hmong woman, you know, when I show up in spaces where the conversation is primarily focused around Hmong male elders. I'm not outspoken. You know, I'm more passive. I don't speak unless I'm spoken to. I don't share my opinion unless I'm asked. You know, in the Hmong culture, Hmong women, we don't actually have an identity outside of our identity as being a wife to our husband. And so, you know, in the professional setting, everybody knows me as Pali Mua. But if you go into the Hmong community, um, particularly within the Mua clan structure, because that is my husband's last name, if you ask people who Pali Mua is, they're not going to know who that is, because in the Hmong culture, I am referred to traditionally as Mrs. Zong Yang Mua, that's my husband's name. When I am interacting with students or when I'm interacting with elders, I think it's really important for them to understand that today Hmong women identify themselves in many different complex ways as well, but we are always also true to who we are, our roots and our history. 
but that we've been able to kind of balance that with our desires for career and education because, again, that is a newly added part of who we are and how we identify ourselves. That's interesting, and I like that that example shows Hmong girls and really all, all girls that they don't have to choose between these push and pull, right, of, of their traditions right. and, and modern life, that they can both respect that culture and have individual professional identities as they become adults. Right, right. You can have the best of both worlds. You don't have to choose. You don't have to give up one aspect in order for you to flourish in another. You know, there is a way to really balance both of it um, and be your true authentic self, right? Because that's the reality of, um, you know, I I think that's the biggest aspect of, you know, um, awareness as well as competence is when you're competent in yourself, you know, when you have that um, unconditional um, drive to knowing where you're coming from, but also accepting, you know, um, some of the things that you can't change, but how do you further be able to elevate that and balance that with where you want to go in the future? Earlier, Dan Neerad, our consultant at the WSB, talked about on-ramps to equity, and he uses that metaphor to mean that districts are in, in different places in regards to that discussion. Could you describe at a broad level what kind of discussions have been happening in Appleton about equity? Is this something you've discussed for a long time? Has yeah. it become more urgent more recently? I came on board in the school district in 2018, and so the equity and inclusion work and conversation has started way before me. And one key instrumental individual was Ron Dunlap, who um, recently passed a few years ago. And so Ron was the first black administrator. He was a principal within our school district. He was the first black administrator working in Appleton Area School District. His wife, Yvette Dunlap, also was an administrator within AASD. Um, and it's key people like the Dunlaps that have really paved the way for some of us to be able to continue the work. In 2018, the district recognized that there wasn't a key person or point person to really lead efforts. It was primarily, you know, a lot of other people trying to take on the work. When I talk about diversity and inclusion work, you know, it is everyone's work, but when it becomes everyone's work, it ends up being no one's work because it's added on a additional on top of what everyone else is already responsible for. In 2018, the district decided that they needed to be more focused. They needed to have a point person to be able to come in and really focus efforts and also, you know, lead the district in a way that is purposeful and intentional. Equity is a huge topic and you can approach it in any number of ways. How would you summarize some of the main challenges that you have in Appleton, of course, not unique in Wisconsin or nationwide? The biggest aspect in terms of equity is trying to close the achievement gap. That is a huge task. That's a huge topic. We understand that the educational system was not set up in a way to help everyone be successful. You know, and the key aspect of education is access. How are students being able to access education and its access at the same level? You know, so we talk a lot about equity versus equality and what is the difference in that? Equity is focused on limiting and dismantling 
systemic barriers that have put in place. We need to really address root causes. We really need to address policies and procedures. We really need to address, you know, the culture, you know, how we view our students, you know, the perceptions. We really need to address the curriculum. Those inequities that show themselves throughout middle and high school often begin in elementary school. Could you describe what you can do early on in a child's academic career to help get them on the right course? Yeah, and I can I can share one aspect that we piloted this past year is we started to do more research as well as visit some of the other school districts that have been doing more focused efforts on community schools. This past fall in 2019, actually in 2019, we launched our first community school at Jefferson uh, Fox River Academy. And again, the focused effort of a community school is to make the school the heart and hub of a neighborhood. The African proverb in terms of it takes a village to raise a child or it takes a village to really support the mental, social, and academic success of a child really is the true aspects of a community school. And so looking at where the barriers are, you know, is it mental health? Is it poverty? Is it access to shelter? Is it access to having a home, you know, a steady living situation? All of those focus really play in the overall mental health as well as development of an individual student to be successful in school. Many of our students, you know, don't have access to a healthy meal three times a day. Many of our families don't have access to applying, you know, for a job. They don't know how to go about the structure that is embedded within the hiring practice, submitting a resume and a cover letter, you know. And so how do you really get at the root causes, um, you know, of the inequities that have been put in place is there anything else I didn't ask that you want to emphasize or mention? No, I think we I think we talked a lot. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you so much, Dan. Thanks so much for listening. The resources we discussed in this podcast are available in the show notes. And if you don't see those in your app, go to WASB.org, look under Publications and Products, and click on the podcast. We appreciate if you'd reviewed this podcast as well and fill out a survey to tell us how we can do better. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next month.